Hello and welcome to the Speaking for Him podcast. My name is Andrew Gamison, and as always, I have the privilege of being your host for the Speaking for Him podcast. And I'm excited to share with you today the completion of my interview with John Wilson. I think that last week was a blessing, and I trust that this week will be a blessing as well. Among other things, we're going to talk about a new novel that John is writing, some dream projects of mine, and also how we can balance the need for a Christian subculture with the need for Christians to be active within the culture that already exists. So I think you will find some benefit and encouragement from that, and I look forward to sharing it with you. But before we do that, let's talk about what is going on. Before I move forward, I just want to say I hope that you all had the opportunity to go to the polls this week and cast your vote for the candidates of your choice. This is a unique and special opportunity that we have as Americans, and I get excited whenever I get the opportunity to go to the polls and express my opinion. I was voter number 213 at my local polling place, so that was exciting for me. The first story that I want to talk to you about is a little bit on the lighthearted side, uh, because I think we've all had our struggles each year around the time of the time change from daylight savings to daylight standard or six months later back again. Well, it's that time of the year again when most of the United States will enjoy an extra hour of sleep. This Sunday, clocks will fall back, but there's growing momentum to make this yearly tradition a thing of the past. Here's CBS's Errol Barnett. Parents already struggle with getting their kids ready for school each morning. For one thing, everybody's confused. Do you go forward or do you go backwards? Which is why Brandy Alexander is among the nearly 8 out of 10 Americans who want to stop changing their clocks twice a year. It's a concern with her crossing the street. Um, cars can't see her and the other children crossing the street. Every March, we spring forward to daylight saving time and each November fall back to standard time. Research shows changing the clocks impacts productivity, our mental and physical health. This just passed. Earlier this year, the U.S. Senate passed the Sunshine Protection Act, aiming to make daylight saving time permanent. This is what sunrise looks like here in Detroit and across Michigan. You can see the sun just peeking up and, of course, light in the sky. But if daylight saving time becomes permanent, the sun wouldn't rise until after 9 a.m. come January. Meaning folks will be getting to work and shuttling their kids to school in the dark. It really messes with our internal systems. and keep Jane Terry is with the National Safety Council, which supports ending the time-changing ritual, but sticking to standard time. Our body rhythm is aligned with the sun, and that is standard time. What we're going to go back to this weekend. Now consider this, Michigan, where I am now, along with just about every other state, have proposed or passed legislation to do away with this regular time rotating ritual. But for now, most states will have to keep changing their clocks, Nora, until Congress changes its mind. Now to start out, there is no wrong answer here. This is not one of the hard-hitting issues that we have 
dealt with on this podcast and we will live to fight another day, no matter which side of this issue we are on. But I think it's kind of interesting how they passed a law, I believe in the Senate, the House has yet to vote on it, to keep daylight time as permanent. And I would have to say that I prefer having more light in the evenings. I don't really think as much about light in the mornings, although we've never had daylight savings time in January, so the prospect of the sun not coming up until 9.01 is something worth thinking about. Uh, I think it's interesting how daylight savings time came to be. It was actually the idea of Benjamin Franklin, uh, but was not enacted until much later, like World War II later, uh, was when it was, I believe, first enacted. And that was, I think yeah, at first it was temporary um, just for the war. And then later on it was adapted as permanent, I think in the 70s. And then sometime in the last 10 or 15 years, I think it was extended. Because when I was a kid, it used to be that it started in April and ended in October. And now it starts in March and ends in November. So they added three weeks on either side for basically a total of an additional six weeks. And so I think that it's interesting as much as people have fought about this issue, it continues to be in existence. And I don't know how much longer we will be changing our clocks back and forth, but I'll be interested to see what would happen. As I said, I'm a big daylight time proponent, but we'll just have to see how that shakes out. This next clip that I want to share with you is a clip from Carrie Lake, who ran for the governor of Arizona this year. And I just really thought that her take on elections and the way that we vote was an important thing for us to think about as we um, are in this season of uh Decision 2022 once again, and as we contemplate voting in the future, it's interesting to me that we voted on Tuesdays every election for years and years and years, and the original impetus behind that was because people had to travel to vote, and they would not travel on the weekends, so in order to be able to travel to the polls on Monday and be able to arrive on Tuesday to vote. That's why Tuesdays were established as the day. Of course, our society is much different now, and I think I would favor making Election Day a national holiday so that people uh, couldn't make excuses why not to vote. Uh, There's definitely been a narrative going around that it is a difficult process to vote, when in reality it isn't. Um, You just have to have the the drive and the desire to get out and make your voice heard. and But I thought that the things that she said in this interview were very interesting. So here's Carrie Lake. As governor, would you seek to change the election laws? And specifically, would you look to limit early voting and mail-in voting in Arizona? I don't know exactly how we'll do it, but we will secure our elections, restore faith in our elections, make sure our elections are honest and transparent. I assume everybody wants that, but specifically early voting and mail-in voting, which you've been very critical of, would you seek to limit it? 
I think, you know, a lot going, going back to when I first started voting yeah. back in the 80s, we had election day. Yeah. Our constitution says election day. It doesn't say election season, election month. And the longer you drag that out, the more fraught with problems there are. We just saw problems this week with Katie Hobbs, my opponent. She just put out, sent out 6,000 ballots that went the wrong type of ballots to the wrong people. Right, they only had the federal, but, but she she was the one that pointed this out. And well, she's I don't care if she pointed but, out. But earlier this week, Lake's opponent, Katie Hobbs, who also serves as the current Secretary of State, announced that 6,000 ballots printed with only federal races were incorrectly sent to voters. Corrected ballots are now being mailed out. My question is whether or not you would limit mail-in voting, limit early voting, uh, given that so many people in the state, it's like 90 percent, vote early in the state or use early ballots. We want to shore up our elections so they are very honest and every voter knows that it's an honest system. I would have to look up that number to see if it is really true that 90 percent of Arizona voters use early voting. I would find that to be an extremely high number. As I said, I think that the significance of Election Day is far greater when the emphasis is on that one day and not on this idea that you can, well, anytime in the next two to three to even four weeks in some cases, just wander in and cast your vote. Not to mention that the costs of that would be astronomical because you'd have to have people at the polls basically at all times during that period. So I think moving forward, we just need to embrace and promote going to the polls to vote. And I know in the past people have said things like people with disabilities are at a a great disadvantage to getting to the vote or even getting IDs. And I've had an ID since I turned 18 and I voted in every election The first couple elections that I was here in Howard City, I voted absentee because I couldn't get into the township hall, but it was my goal every time I voted to go out to the polls and make my voice heard. To me, that was important because to me, setting foot in the township hall or wherever the voting location was, was me making a statement about asserting my rights. And I really want people to see me at the polls so that they know that nothing will stop me from voting and from making my voice heard on the things that are very important in our communities and in our state and also as we broaden out to the federal uh, jurisdictions that we find ourselves in. So 2022 midterms, have now passed. We'll see how all the results pan out. Um, but I hope, as I said uh, in the beginning of this episode, that you took the opportunity to make your voice heard. And if you didn't, maybe voting is something you've never really done. I would encourage you to get registered to vote so that the next time you have an opportunity to go to the polls, you are able to do so. Um, it's quite easy in this information age in which we live to get the information you need to make an intelligent vote and a vote um, that will honor the Lord. And so I would just encourage you to do that. There are a lot of countries that don't have the right to vote as we do, and so we need to be cognizant of that privilege and be grateful for it and exercise it with wisdom and caution. 
And now I want to share the quote of the day. The quote of the day today comes from 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And I feel like this is a good jumping off point for the remainder of this discussion because as we talk about claiming media for the master and doing arts in a way that glorifies God, it is a unique opportunity to show forth the light of the Lord. And Jesus was a master storyteller, so I feel like him giving us the ability to tell stories, whether it be the art form of film, literature, or theater, is a unique gift which further enhances our understanding of his image as the ultimate creator. Because he created the world in seven days, and the majesty of the world is something that we can not fathom. Uh, the more we study it, the more majestic it becomes. And so it's amazing to consider. And I'm just so grateful to have been created in the image of God and to have been given the gifts that I've been given. And I hope that I am using them to the best of my ability to show forth God's light. And it helps us to remember that we are a peculiar people, that we are a holy nation, meaning that we should separate ourselves from the world. It can be easy to try to blend in, um, and even some of our attempts at sharing the gospel and at bringing people to Christ seem like instead of uh, staying on that separate line, we say, how close can we get to the world and still be holy? And I think we really need to have a change of mind and say let's be as holy as we can let's be as separate as we can and allow God to do the work of bringing people to himself through our efforts because the Bible says it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure and now it's time for the main segment of our podcast today and as I said earlier it is the balance of my conversation with John Wilson uh, we have been talking about media and how we can use it to further the kingdom of God. And I'm really excited for you to hear the balance of this conversation because we really dig into the Christian subculture, what's good about it, what maybe is not so good about it, and what we can do to continue to bring light to the world when it comes to our media projects. So without further ado, here is the balance of my conversation with John Wilson. You know, we've been talking, there's these really wonderful things I think Christians are, are doing in, in media. We talked about, um, the chosen. I think there's some wonderful Christian creatives um, that are almost like stealth infiltrating Hollywood and 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 creating films from that Christian perspective and stuff. So there's some great opportunities there, but I I definitely feel like 
there's more opportunities for Christians. Do you think there's some ways that we can improve how we're using media, how we're telling story, how we're creating music, uh, both for the edification of the church and for reaching out to the unreached? Well, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned this because there's been some interesting things that have happened in the history of Christian film. Um, because, it, you know, I uh, growing up, I used to go to the church library and I would get out um, certain children's films, Christian children's films. And I, I wish I could remember the main company, but there were several that they did that they did with puppets. And of course, those aren't our limited reality. And then you had other really cheesy Christian films. And then you kind of had this resurgent, this renaissance, if you will, of Christian film when the Kendrick brothers came on the scene and started trying to make legitimate Christian films that had a, a high quality production value. Now, some people will, will argue a one uh, content creator um, named Kevin McCreary, who has worked with me on some projects. He will, he often, he, takes the exact opposite tack that I do when he reviews stuff. He reviews stuff to look at what's bad about it. And he will often challenge those movies as too preachy. But of course the Kendricks were preachers before they became filmmakers. So that's their perspective. So that's the way I look at it. And I don't have a problem with that, but I will say this, that a few weeks ago I was looking for something to do for the podcast. And I realized that the Billy Graham evangel evangelical association started um, putting some of their old movies from the seventies and eighties on their YouTube channel. And so one of the movies was Johnny, which I don't know if you are familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata, but she, um, runs the organization, Johnny and friends. She was paralyzed in 1967. Ironically, after praying for God to draw her closer to himself, she said that wasn't what she had in mind, but God used it. And 11 years later, um, Billy Graham somehow got in touch with her and they decided to make a movie of her life. Mm. And I watched it and I'm like, it's dated because obviously it's in the 70s. But as far as a quality movie with very little saccharine, sweet or cheesiness, I was like, this is a high quality film. How did we go from this in the late 70s to some of the stuff that we're pumping out? Uh, nowadays, and I think part of it is the pressure to do things like the world. Nothing's worse than a Christianized board game that's a version of what the world did. We don't need to do that. We need to have new creative ideas, like the Bible Man. I'm sorry if I mean I don't know. Maybe you maybe you like the Bible Man, but that one just str strikes me right out the gate as something that was well intentioned but not really necessary. Yeah, it's not very good. I grew up with it, so I have a small nostalgic place in my heart, but I recognize it's not that great. Okay, so, I mean, there there's some reasons to enjoy some of that stuff, but the concept of always needing an, a direct Christian answer to everything that the world puts out, I don't think that's what we should be doing. I think we just need to be more creative on our own and coming up with really good stories and telling them, mm -hmm. you know... I had this conversation with my friend Kevin because one of the things that frustrates me is there used to be a time in our culture where everyone, at least to a certain extent, revered the Bible. 
So you could write something from a biblical perspective and people would respect it and publish it. And you wouldn't even necessarily be a Christian, but you would respect the principles of the Bible. But I feel like if I were to write something and then submit it to a secular publisher, they'd probably be like, well, we'll publish it if you take out these five things. But the five things they want me to take out are the five most important things that I wrote in the whole thing. So if I have to sanitize it in order to get you to publish it, then it's not worth it to me to do that. So, yes, I do agree with some people that say the Christian subculture is too heavy because we shouldn't be separating ourselves too much. But I think the world does a good enough job of separating us. Like, I don't think I could get published by a secular publisher because my passion for biblical things comes through in all my writing and they would just be like, we can't publish this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's that I think is one of the challenges for people trying to navigate a, a calling to something artistic or something in the media landscape, when your faith is really that important to you, um, it takes over everything. I think of Lewis when he's talking about when he made Aslan in Narnia, he made Aslan and all of a sudden Aslan took over the book. And like, I'm writing, um, a, a fantasy novel right now, uh, which I guess this is the first time I publicly said that. <laughs> so I guess this is sort of an announcement to my professors in school and everybody listening to your podcast. Um, but I've been working on it and it's, it's super early. Like I just finished the first draft, but because everything that I'm passionate about as a storyteller comes from my experience walking through life with my faith being central, there is a, a a God character, which is very minimally used in the book because I, I think it's terrifying to try and write a character that's God, <laughs> but trying to navigate that in a way that's true to the experience and true to the story, um, but also still communicates strongly the the emotions and themes that I'm trying to communicate is really hard, but it's impossible to do that without a Christian framework, you know, and I would hope that anybody, if I ever publish this, uh, which I'm hoping to, I would hope that anybody would read it from any walks of life and just say, wow, this is a great fantasy story, but there's just so much of my faith in there that, you know, I, I think it would be really hard to read it and not notice at least those parallels. And I think that's one of the challenging things is we as Christians stretch our, stretch our earned legs again in this, and this ever-evolving world of media is how do we share these stories or share this um, these parts of us with the world when when Christ is so central and not in a sense of how do I do that subtly without ruffling feathers, but you know how do I I guess how do I operate in this space with these convictions? Um, and what's the right balance there? And I think that's that can be tricky, I think, to navigate. At least as an artist, I find that tricky to navigate. So, Well, I don't remember if it was C.S. Lewis or Tolkien. One of them said, I was just trying to write a good book. It wasn't even intended to be an allegory. But the allegory part came out because, like you said, they are writing from a perspective of 
um, faith. And I don't know if you've seen the movie, the reluctant convert, mm-hmm. um, C.S. Lewis's story, but really J.R.R. Tolkien is a key part in C.S. Lewis's journey from being a deist to being a born again believer. Because it wasn't enough to believe that God was real. Even though he went from atheist to deist, he's like, it's not enough to realize that God is real. You have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God and that he's the only way. And so I, I just think about, when I think about what you're saying about writing from an intrinsically Christian perspective, because you are a Christian, rather than trying to write a Christian book, mm. that's what I think about often. Jesus said, if you abide in the vine, then my words will be in you and the words that are in us will flow out of us. So I think it really comes from that. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of the power of the, the writers or the painters or uh, the musicians that really have throughout time been prolific and stuck with us. Michelangelo Bach, um, G.K. Chesterton, the Inklings, all of them didn't set out to be like, I'm going to make a Christian thing. They set out to make something that communicated how they saw the world. But of course, how they saw the world was through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of of God and, and Christ. And so that just seeped into everything, like it couldn't help it. But so much of that has become so entrenched in our culture hundreds probably thousands of music students play Bach every year everybody's seen Michelangelo's paintings um or I suppose everybody in western culture at least um you know Tolkien's work is so widely spread right now um G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown novels which are really overtly Christian um because it surrounds a priest that was a really successful BBC show. Um, and I think, I, I think the thing that separates them is when you're, when you're trying to communicate that you're trying to communicate truth instead of trying to make something into a Christian thing and check the boxes. Instead, you're trying to make something that's truthful, which then of course would mean that that thing is Christian because that is the truth. And that's how, uh, you know, you, you live and that's how you see the world. So. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's so true. You, you, everybody can only write from their perspective. And, and the number one thing that most writers will tell you when you're writing something is to write from what, you know, like as much as I'd like to write a political thriller, I don't have the knowledge of or experience in politics to write a political thr- thriller at this time. Um, I'm trying to work through writing an autobiography right now, but it's very intimidating to me because I'm just living my story. You know, every once in a while people will be like, you you do all these amazing things. How do you do it all? Or, or how do you stay so active? And, you know, I step back and I'm like, Oh, I guess that is pretty amazing. I guess it is pretty amazing that I've, you know, assistant directed five or six shows at Master Arts. I guess it is pretty amazing that that I'm about to take the stage as the ghost of Christmas present. 
you know, but, but when I'm living it, when I'm in the moment, I don't really think of it as that amazing because it's just my life and it's just the life that I'm living. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of intimidating to try to put it down on paper in a way that people will actually want to read it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I get that. Cool. So, um, speaking of amazing things that you've done, um, I'm going to kind of bring it home with just a couple more questions uh, about you that I'm just curious about. So I'm going to ask him, do you have a favorite podcast episode that you've ever made? I, I, it's, it's a really hard question. I, I ask myself that for every milestone podcast that we do, but I would have to say that my readers theater podcasts are my favorite. I've done two of them. Now I did a Christmas Carol uh, back in year two. Um, so just in quite a while ago, and that was really fun. We did four episodes, read the whole book, basically cover to cover because it's in the public domain with different actors. And so that turned out well. And then the Pilgrim's Progress was really awesome because we took the pandemic and we used it to our advantage. Um, it's kind of funny because I have a third one planned but I haven't been able to track down enough actors because now everybody's so busy <laughs> as opposed to when we, when they were in the pandemic, everybody wanted something to do out of their house because they weren't, they didn't feel comfortable leaving or we weren't allowed to leave. Mm-hmm. We weren't allowed to get on stage and do plays. So it makes it more challenging, but those, those are definitely my favorite um, specific ones. But I would say in general, my favorite podcasts are ones when I can interview someone and let them tell their story. I think some of the more powerful podcasts that I've had is when the person that I'm interviewing kind of actually takes over the show. And, you know, I try as an interviewer to not say as much as the person that I'm interviewing. And when I go back and edit those interviews, most of what I lop off is stuff that I say, because I have the same problem that you were referencing earlier about rambling. And <laughs> I'm like, I said 15 minutes of stuff here, but I really only need like three of yep. that. So those are my favorite when I can interact with other people, because that was probably the biggest adjustment with the pandemic and coming home was doing the podcast by myself mm. because I prefer having a co-host actually. And, uh, I always joked with Adam that when he was in the studio with me recording those episodes, I was like, at least I know that one person's listening or Hmm. pretending to. So Mm -hmm. for sure. Do you have a dream project? Uh, well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, as I mentioned before that I really love acting and, uh, so my dreams, one of them is to headline direct a show at master arts. I'm actually thinking about writing a show that incorporates some of the material that I've used in narrations to do something for a passion play that could be done, uh, for, for the April spring show some year here at Master Arts. But I've also always liked television. When I was a kid, I used to dream about starring in my own sitcom. And if Pure Flix wants to do a sitcom and 
and have me start alongside like Kirk Cameron or Candace Cameron Bure. That would be awesome. I think, I think as far as broadcasting dreams, um, doing, doing some kind of regular work in television or film would be kind of awesome. And then also I still have a desire to work in radio, but I definitely see how podcasting has kind of taken over that space. So I kind of feel like I'm working in what is the broadcasting medium of choice for most people these days anyway. So, yeah, for sure. So last question, um, what encouragement or advice would you give to anybody who is thinking about trying to step into this world of media or media production or podcasting um, and trying to fulfill and trying to live their Christian life out in that space? Well, I think as far as living your Christian life out in that space, like I, I, you know, I joke about wanting to become a big movie star, but the reality is that if I went to California and tried to become a movie star in the traditional sense, I would probably have a real hard time with it. Not just because I'm on four wheels for those who don't know, I'm in a wheelchair, but also because I would have to turn down a lot of scripts because there are, there are so many, roles that I would never even consider taking because my Christian testimony would be uh, in the offing and would take a hit if I were to portray something on the screen that I, that I didn't fully approve of. So there's that element of it. I think there's also the element of if you're going to be a content creator, it has to come from a passion. Like, even when I go to Master Arts to audition for a show, I don't audition for every show. I'm not like, well, there's a play coming up at Master Arts, so I'm going to audition for it. I audition for shows that I know I have a passion for so that when I work on the show, whether in crew or whether on cast, my passion for the show comes out and it makes the show better. If I just auditioned for everything because I wanted opportunities, then the passion wouldn't be there and it wouldn't be worth doing. So... Find your passion, work from there, and just trust God. You know, I didn't get to this 10-year point by saying, oh, in 10 years, I'm still going to be doing this. As a matter of fact, there were several times throughout this 10 years where I've kind of hit a wall, and I've been like, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do next? And there's always been something. So I all I can say is... um that you just need to trust God and see what he will do if you're willing to serve him. And like I tried um, YouTube for a little bit. Um, I think late last year I did like seven or eight weeks of short YouTube videos in a row. And I'm not saying I'll never do YouTube again, but I don't think that videos are my gifting. And I told my brother, I said, it takes me about as much time to edit a seven minute YouTube video as it does to edit a 40 minute podcast. Mm. So I don't feel like that's where my strengths are. It doesn't mean that God couldn't decide to use that in me later, but that's just what I've arrived at. And I think trying to do what somebody else is gifted at because you think it looks cool 
is not the way to go. We're, we're as the, as followers of Christ, we are a body and every part of the body has its own skills. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me, Andrew. This has been really wonderful. I've really enjoyed talking to you, getting to hear a little bit more of your story. Um, and just talking about these, these different topics and, and teasing this out. This has been really great. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed doing that interview with John Wilson and I'm very grateful that he allowed me to share it here on the podcast. It's just really good to talk to someone who has a passion for the gospel and the arts. And as we have talked about this um, topic, it just has awakened in me a new passion for these things. You know, I think God is a creative God. I mean, he created the whole world. And so since we're made in his image, I think that points to the fact that he made us to be creatives. And so I think it's exciting uh, to see the way that that creation is manifesting itself in our culture and in different realms of media. And I just wanted to speak a little bit to the subculture that I was talking about in this interview. I never really elaborated on the board game statement that I made in the interview itself. So let me just do that here. Uh, my experience with Christianized board games has been such that a Christianized version of Apples to Apples is not nearly as well done as simply Apples to Apples. Now, as believers in the Lord, my family has come across certain Apples to Apples cards that we have then tossed out and decided not to use in our playing of the game, but in general, the original apples to apples is much stronger than uh, Bible apples to apples or any number of Bible games uh, that you can think of. And another thing that I often think about when when this type of discussion happens is the whole thing of just Bible trivia games even in and of themselves. I remember this hit home for me once when I think my sister Charity was about seven years old, so I would have been um, between 28 and 29, uh, possibly 29, because I think it might have been Christmas of that year. So I'm 29, Charity is seven, and we get this Bible trivia game for Christmas, and my sister Charity is answering the hard questions. Now, I'm grateful that my parents taught us the Bible, and I do believe that Charity retained a lot of the Bible when she was seven. But I just remember thinking as I was doing that trivia game that it seemed like they rushed this trivia game to market. If a seven-year-old could answer the most difficult questions on the game, they should have taken more thought and care in what they were producing. And I think, to me, that's the biggest takeaway for myself from this conversation that I just shared is the idea that if we're going to create content, we need to make sure that it is top tier. We need to make sure that it is high quality. 
uh, because we're supposed to do all to the glory of God. And so that means not doing half jobs. That means making sure that we have strong plots, strong characters, strong storylines, and that when we have the resources to do high production value, that we do high production value and not just phone it in and expect people um, to watch it because it looks cute or because it appeals to children and families. Because we as Christians are not exclusive in this either. I've seen uh, definitely some pieces from the world, from Hollywood, where it really isn't plot heavy, it really isn't well done, but it's made for kids and there's a lot of cheap jokes and so that's what sells the tickets. And, and we as Christians, uh, need to set a standard for quality. Notice I said set a standard, not just follow along with the standards of the world and try to Christianize everything they do. But we need to be trendsetters. We need to be at the top of the heap, not following along behind. And so I hope that this discussion encourages you. Um, if you have any thoughts on how we can do uh, life and utilize media better for the master. I would be glad to hear from you. Um, my email address is Andrew at speaking And I would be glad to have you get in touch with me and give me your feedback, um, on that or anything else. And if you have topic ideas, also feel free to contact me. The contact information will roll at the end of the show today. And then you will be encouraged to reach out and just let me know what did you think of this episode? How did it encourage you? And what can we do as we move on into the future with the Speaking for Him podcast? Again, I'm sure we will have some post-election news on our next episode. Right now, we just need to pray for our country as we go through this time of transition that we will seek God and God alone. And with that being said, I will simply say, have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 